0: Good morning. Today is Sunday, July 23rd, 2017, and we will preempt our Sunday special edition with a Sunday special convention promo. It is an exciting day, very important day today, isn't it? Five years in reading, learning, and celebrating recovery together. We have not compromised nor apologized. We have recovered. Boy, that sounds bold, doesn't it? these words coming from a group of fellows that cling to the the idea of humility and gratitude as a way of life but bold we are and you're going to see just how bold recovery truly is when you meet up with us come this september life was all about the food once now it's the fellowship you crave visions has put this all together for you in one grand location Join A Vision for You as we take our five years on the road to northern New Jersey. Convention 2017, The Power of the Big Book, Your Weekend of Inspiration, Education, Motivation, and Fellowship. Your reservation is awaiting your approval at www.avisionforyou.info. All details can be found there. Hey, I heard there's rooms still at the Renaissance Hotel. There's special rates and continuous shuttle service. Please check out our community bulletin board. There's so much information for you because it is great and it is fantastic. As you make your reservation, continue to see what's new on that particular bulletin board. Matter of fact, I believe that I hear that there's going to be a couple of very precious rooms coming on that bulletin board tonight being posted this is one experience that you do not want to miss now let's get to this anniversary special edition that's coming up now sit back relax and enjoy this because this is for you happy happy anniversary A vision for you good morning leah
1: thank you and good morning melanie good morning everyone and welcome to a special edition of a vision for you Today is Sunday, July 23rd, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, July 21st are for the 7 a.m. Eastern meeting, 10186, and for the 10 a.m. Eastern meeting, 10188. This morning, A Vision For You celebrates its fifth anniversary with a very special edition. Thirteen Testimonials as to the Power, Experience, and Results of the Program of Recovery. Many people consider the Program of Recovery, the 12 Steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched by the 12 Steps. The sole purpose of this step work is to find power through the experience of a spiritual awakening. The 12 steps enable people of all different kinds, all different types, from all different backgrounds, in spite of all odds, to experience change, transformation, like never seen anywhere else. What a miracle! 12 simple steps which anybody can apply. This morning, you will hear from 13 voices, each describing in their own personal way how the individual steps have changed them, 13 voices weaving together 13 stories of transformation, creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. Let's get started now with Step 1, Part 1, Allergy of the Body, Lori C. from Canada.
2: Hi,
3: my name is Laurie. I'm a compulsive overeater. It's a great privilege to be able to talk about this uh, uh, because it is the step, the part of the step, which I resisted in Overeaters Anonymous for over six or seven years. I believed that my problem was, as all the diets and nutritionists uh, that I had followed told me, that I just ate too much. And uh, I would go on a diet, I would lose my weight, and then they all promised me that once I lost my weight, I could eat anything in moderation. I followed this in Overeaters Anonymous for over six years, and uh, I kept uh, relapsing. And I I did not accept the notion that is found in the doctor's opinion uh, of the big book, which is the simple statement that... In this statement, the doctor's statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, we have to believe it, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. We are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor, is incomplete. I resisted that for over six years until I finally was brought to my knees by a kind, honest person in OA, loving person, who intervened with me and really brought me to my knees. Well, what is this allergy of the body that the big book talks about? Uh, we hear in OA often, well, alcoholics uh, just don't have to drink, but we have to eat at least three times a day. But that's not true. Alcoholics have to drink. They just can't drink alcohol. And we, can, we must eat, but we cannot eat or indulge in foods, food ingredients, uh, and or eating behaviors, which causes the same kind of addictive uh, behavior that alcohol causes to alcohol or drugs uh, cause to drug addicts. And that's what I had to overcome. I had to analyze my eating. I had to understand and remember that my entire life consisted of eating at times when I really didn't want to, but I had to. This hand coming to the mouth and saying uh, and my saying to myself, I, I've had enough, I'm full, uh, people are watching, I've, I've gained too much weight. And the hand inexorably coming to the mouth, sometimes with a spoon, sometimes with a fork, often without either of those things, even though I should have been using those things. And just bring it to the mouth and my mouth eating and my body saying and my mind saying, had enough, had enough. But no, my body actually said, I want more and more. Uh, and this whole notion of uncontrollable cravings, I didn't experience it all the time. Sometimes I could control it if there were people uh, around, but boy, oh boy, it happened to me. So once I accepted this notion that there was something different about my body, that other people get full and didn't want any more, uh, but my reaction to certain kinds of food was I needed more even if I was absolutely stuffed to the gills. and. Um, I have that with alcohol. I can't drink more than one drink before my body begins to reject it. Alcoholics don't understand that. Uh, But I've never been addicted to radishes and I've never been addicted to celery. Um, But I have been addicted to various things. Now, I do want to talk about a few things in the next uh, three and a half minutes. Uh, I wanted to say that uh, we must develop a plan of eating uh, that eliminates the things that we are. uh, that we uh, allow us to develop uncontrollable cravings. Uh, this is what the doctor meant by allergy. He didn't mean uh, hives or diarrhea or, or uh, you know, anaphylactic shock. Uh, allergy means generically a detrimental uh, physical reaction to a substance, and that's what I had. My detrimental physical reaction was cravings. The beautiful part, the big book says it, it really helps us to understand that we couldn't control our drinking because of an allergy, uh, is that there's no guilt. My body's different. Uh, it means that I have to abstain from the things that cause this because that's at the root of my issue. Once I don't eat those things, and if I can keep away from them, we'll be talking about that later, I'm sure, uh, then I, I won't be tempted. I, I, I won't, my body will not react in this way. Uh, it also uh, makes certain that I must develop a plan a plan of eating. Our pamphlet, the OA pamphlet "A Dignity of Choice, really helps to help us develop our individual plan. We ought not, that pamphlet says, the group conscience of OA says, accept anyone else's uh, idea of what should be a plan for me. My plan is individual. My body reacts in individual ways. And, um, The development of a plan involves analyzing our foods and analyzing our experience and experimenting uh, really by analysis to see what, in fact, uh, causes us uncontrollable cravings and being absolutely honest and not simply accepting someone else's say-so. I've yet to meet a person who has been addicted to a bag of flour, and yet I meet in no way so many people who say that they're addicted to flour. Well, they must be addicted to things that flour is mixed with. Uh, that flour in some way helps bind them. And it may be in combination with sugar, it may be in combination uh, with fats, but do analyze and take specific ingredients too. Sometimes it's specific foods, even though they don't contain a particular ingredient. Uh, Sometimes it's eating behaviors. I discovered that I was addicted to chewing, that chewing increased my my, my need to take in more food and that I had to limit the amount of chewing and sucking that I did uh, to three meals a day, because if I did it in between eating, you know, as, as some uh, weight uh, loss plans said, eat all the time, keep your mouth busy. Well, keeping my, my mouth busy uh, gave me the the uncontrollable craving to keep it busy and ingest even more food, even if it was not food that contained my um, my particular binge foods. I also had a need to be filled up to the gills. Some people have needs to eat after 9 o'clock. If they eat after 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock, they start to eat too much. So I'll I'll just end with this because I know my seven minutes are just about up. Um, No guilt. You have to abstain. You have to develop a plan. And for people pleasers like us, if someone says, I made this especially for you, you now have three possible answers. One is... Oh, and they say, well, what what happens if you eat too much? You can say, I develop uncontrollable cravings. I'm a member of Overeaters Anonymous. I've got to lose weight. If you know anyone who needs help, let me know. I'll be happy to help them. You can say, I break out in fat. Or finally, you can say, my bum begins to swell.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Lori C. from Canada. Step one, part two, the obsession of the mind. Harlan Hmm. G. from Arizona.
2: Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. Thank you to everybody who makes this meeting possible. Lori is a very tough act to follow, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Okay. Um, From the moment I was born, from the moment I was a a little child, pre-kindergarten, the world looked at me and I looked at the world and the world looked and said, why is he eating so much food? What is wrong with this kid? And they would yell at my parents and say, why are you letting him eat such and such? Why are you letting him eat cookies? Why are you letting him eat cake or challah or whatever it is? And my parents didn't really have much of an explanation. And I looked back at the world and I wondered, why aren't you eating so much? What is it about you that gives you this Lake Michigan amount of willpower that allows you to live in a world with chocolate and allows you to live in a world with all these various fried foods and eat them in moderation. And seemingly, seemingly you can eat them with impunity, which means that they don't get punished for it. This disease ripped me apart. This disease humiliated me. This disease emasculated me. It deformed me, and it made impossible any dream or aspiration that I ever had. My mind was always full of what I was going to eat or what I was going to try to not eat. Later on in my life, I found out something that changed my life, hopefully forever. This is information that I found out. I found out that food is not the problem for people like me. I thought food was the problem. I believed food was the problem. And somebody said to me, somebody very wise said to me, if food was the problem, diets would work, and they don't. If food was the problem... Bariatric surgery would work, and it doesn't. If food was the problem, treatment centers and hospitals would turn out winners, and they don't. And they told me something very important. They explained to me that food, for people like me, compulsive overeaters, is the solution to the problem. And the solution to the problem is food because food is doing something for me that it does not do for the normal temperate eater. In a normal person, they get no thought like I do. Now, if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? It was explained to me, and it's in Dr. Silkworth's opinion, It's on the bottom of page XXVIII and at the top of XXIX. That's 28 and 29 in Roman numerals. He explains in, in different words that the problem of the compulsive overeater is that the pain of not eating is too much for me to bear. The pain of not eating is unbearable. It is searing. It is unrelenting. And in search of a relief to that pain, my brain will activate the mental twist and the mental twist will tell me what to do to get relief from the untenable pain of not eating and it will suggest very strongly to me that I eat food. Now, Lori just mentioned radishes and celery. My brain never told me to eat radishes and celery either. My brain would say, hmm, eat an Oreo cookie, eat a chocolate turtle or a Kit Kat bar. And the intelligence side of my brain, see the mental twist goes on the emotional side of the brain. The intelligence side of my brain says, don't you dare eat that stuff. You're not going to look good. You're not going to feel good. And the emotional side of the brain where the mental twist is would call up its strongest ally, the mental blank spot the built-in forgetter, so that I cannot remember what the food does to me, I can only focus in on what the food does for me. And the mental twist is on the emotional side of the brain, the intelligent side of the brain is saying don't eat the food, and in the brain of an addict, the emotional will overwhelm the intelligent every time, and I will eat the food. And I will trigger, as was beautifully described in Lori's segment there, I will trigger the physical allergy, making it impossible for me to stop. But for about nine seconds, my brain will say, I told you so. That Oreo cookie is making you feel fantastic. And the first Oreo cookie that goes in my mouth takes the pain away very effectively. Very effectively. And I feel fantastic for about nine seconds. And then the allergy sets in and I can no longer control the amount of food I'm eating. Now, I will eat and eat and eat because I've now triggered the allergy. Now, if I cannot eat because of the allergy and I cannot keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I am absolutely powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. And when I work with new people, I often ask them to say, I am powerless over my emotional state and my food is unmanageable. So I'm going to segue into step two, which is the next step. It begs the question, what if I could find a way to live when my mind does not lock in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating that food. And the process of bringing the necessary power into the equation is very simply called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening that occurs as a result of working the steps. If I can't eat because of the allergy and I cannot keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, which, which sets the whole thing in motion, I am absolutely powerless over food. Now, here is something I need to remember. The depth at which I will accept the doctor's opinion will mark the urgency with which I will work the rest of the 11 steps. Until I can accept my powerless condition, I don't see the need for the rest of these steps. And so I don't attack them with the urgency of life and death. I am sitting between two doors. When that came in my head, in my soul, all human beings have these emotions that build up but in my brain, my mental twist will drive me irresistibly into the food in search of relief to that pain. I can either eat the food, which will give me temporary orgasmic relief, or I can work the steps, which will give me permanent happiness and fulfillment with none of the devastating, death-defying side effects. And with that, I will pass. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Harlan. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Gina R. from Colorado.
4: Good morning. I am Gina R., gratefully recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body in Colorado, soon to be a sweltering Arizona resident. I am one of those who journeyed many years in 12-step rooms before discovering that my first drug of no choice was food my oa date is may 17 2016 and my aa date is may 23 1985. on page 44 in the big book chapter we agnostics it states we hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. This was the case for me. I finally conceded to my innermost self that food was winning, and I had no power over it. I had taken step one my problem though was that I did believe in a higher power but had not positioned myself to receive the miracle of recovery I was using my faith on my terms and not heeding the inner voice of instruction and wisdom I took what I wanted and I left the rest this turned out to be disastrous but a disaster for which I am now grateful Step two, as Leah stated, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This step basically outlines three different types of people and their perspectives on a belief in a higher power. First, those that won't believe in God. Second, those that can't believe in God. And third, those that do believe that God exists but have no faith whatever that he will perform this miracle. While I mostly fall into the third category, there are elements of the first two categories that apply to me. While I've always thought I had a belief in faith, working these steps as they're prescribed by first laying down the food, I was able to receive and process the truth about myself. I was a lukewarm believer. While I wasn't anti-religious, I was smug and self-righteous about organized religion and spiritual and faith communities, including 12-step programs. It was at this point I took hold of what is referred to as the set-aside prayer. There are different variations of it, and here's the one I used. God, please help me set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, the 12 steps, my recovery, and especially you. Help me to have an open mind and a new experience in all these areas. Please let me see and receive truth. This prayer is about believing in new possibilities, even though you can't see them. This is where the food had me stuck, but also served as the vehicle as I came to believe. On page 29 in the 12 and 12, it talks about the intellectually self-sufficient man or woman. This was an issue for me and to this day is my most pronounced character defect that God is graciously addressing in my life. Yes, we like you, far too smart for our own good. We love to have people call us precocious. We used our education to blow ourselves up into prideful balloons, though we were careful to hide it from others. Secretly, we felt we could float above the rest of the folks on our brain power alone. As I worked step two and allowed my preconceived notions to be set aside, I was gifted with a new thought and prayer. I needed to pray for stupidity. For me, my intellect was not working and was actually counterproductive. I began to see that people who were quote unquote getting this deal were not consumed with a bunch of questions and driven by the need to figure it out. They were getting it by not flexing their intellect and their ego. I realized that I had placed the God of my intellect in the position of a higher power God. And because I am not omnipotent, I had reached the limit of my ability. And the disease was winning by shutting out any humility that was available. On page 48 in the big book, it talks about being beat into a state of reasonableness. This was finally happening for me. I was becoming teachable and open to the truth and to being directed. Further on page 50 in the big book, it states, here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed. They flatly declare that since they have come, came to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they, were wholeheartedly, after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. This is what happened for me. I had reached a place of personal and professional crisis and failure even though the outside worldly standards would say i had arrived i now know that the decisions i had made over a three-decade period were rooted in fear and driven by my ego and resulted in me being run by defects of character and i was flattened with despair and despondency page 53 in the big book it talks about being crushed by a self-imposed crisis and to have to face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or isn't. What was my choice to be? Being squarely confronted, I made the decision to accept it, and I walked, for, I walked far over the bridge of region and stepped toward the shore of faith. It was a new beginning for me. I was free of the compulsion to have to figure it out. I came to believe that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. Sanity is that state of mind that I was created for, not what I had experienced or conjured up through my intellect over the years. I was now experiencing the fruits of this belief, being spared food's final catastrophe. I was able to calmly accept impossible situations, seeking neither to run nor recriminate. This was not only faith it was faith that worked under all conditions i concluded that whatever pride price and humility i must pay i would pay it i now have clarity and courage to make decisions that are rooted in god's will not my ego and i am experiencing freedom to not have to figure it all out I am very grateful for this particular meeting and I'm honored and humbled to participate and recognize this fifth year anniversary. Thank you, Leah, for asking me and all who have come before to allow me to experience this miracle and to carry the message to others. I welcome the newcomer and old timers like me who think they have to figure it out. You don't. And in fact, it will kill you if you keep trying. With that, I pass.
1: Thank you, Gina R. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Kathy Kaye from Massachusetts.
5: Thank you, Leah. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm very honored to be on this panel as well. Um, and uh, step three is one that I found very difficult Um, In fact, uh, I still work at it on a daily basis. Um, We're often told that we're not asked to take any action until step four. All we're asked to do in step three is to make a decision. But I found that decision very, very difficult to make because of my uh, lifelong agnosticism. Um, while, as uh, Gina suggested, um, step two is about um, stopping to try to figure everything out and take the action suggested in the 12 steps, I found that extremely difficult to do. Um, it was only as I worked with my sponsor and really studied um, pages 60 to 63 in the big book, um, that I began to appreciate what was in front of me. And that challenge was to surrender my life and my will, to really put it in God's hands. Um, I was raised uh, to be self-sufficient. The prime value that I was taught was self-reliance. Um, And for me, the idea of um, making this decision to put my life in the care of God uh, was just so frightening. I had no idea how I was going to do it. Um, The three pertinent ideas on page 60, we were alcoholics and could not manage our own lives, and probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism and that God could and would if he were sought. My goodness. um, Those those were beliefs that um, were a tall order for me to accept. Um, And then I started reading on page 60 and 61 about self-will. You know, up until this point in my life, uh, with the exception of getting a food plan in step one and accepting that I had an allergy um, of the body, um, I, had, I didn't know there was any way else to live but through self-will. Um, I had to read and study and read stories and listen to others to recognize that I had... Um, what's described on page 61 and 62. Um, I was selfish and self-centered and self-seeking. But that was core to my identity. And heretofore, I had always seen myself as a nice person who cared a lot about other people. And I would never have described myself as selfish or self-centered. It was only actually through the process of doing the fourth step inventory that I saw all the evidence of my selfishness and my self-centered approach to life. On the bottom of page 62, it says we have to quit playing God. Um, In essence, In living by self-will, I was playing God. I was being the final authority on how the world should be and what was right. Um, This idea, the proposition of giving up and surrendering to a higher power uh, was so foreign to me and so difficult. Um, And in essence, what enabled me to carry forward on this was um, being encouraged to practice Step 3 on a daily basis. And to this day, um, you know, six years after becoming recovered, I am still practicing Step 3 on a daily basis, um, and I'm getting much better at it. Um, So for me, um, what we learn um, on page the top of page 63, we now have a new employer. And that new employer is God. He provided what we needed if we stayed close to him and performed his work well. And so every day today, I say the third step prayer when I start my day um, and really uh, put my intention on listening for God's will for me. And as I say that today, uh, it's really quite extraordinary because for uh, 60 years of my life, I did not live this way. I lived by self-will and self-will alone. Step three is one uh, that enabled me to begin doing the work of the rest of the steps not on my own will, but by partnering with a newfound higher power. And I am so grateful for this step, and I remind myself every morning by saying the Third Step Prayer, which is on page 63, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage of self, so that I may better do thy will, and take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. And I use this prayer every day and through further study of this step and all of the steps, I was encouraged to make this prayer my own, use my own words so that I could um, really invite God into my daily life. As it turns out, I have rewritten this prayer, but I often return to the original. Um, I'm so grateful to the big book and to the extent that I can stay rooted in the big book I find it much easier to surrender my will and my life to the care of God. And with that, I pass.
1: Thank you, Cassie Kaye. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Sherry K.B. from California.
6: Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everybody. This is Sherry K.B. in Northern California, grateful recovery compulsive reader. Happy anniversary. Happy fifth anniversary. So step four, I had to find out what was blocking me from my higher power because I wanted to walk in the sunlight of the spirit. Um, I had to look at what I was eating at and what was eating me, and the only way to find that out was to do a step four. Um, I had to ask myself how free did I want to be because what I'd been doing in the past had not worked for me. I've been in the program a long time, I worked a lot of steps, but not like this, not like it's laid out in the big book. It took me 28 years to be willing to work the steps in the big book, the way it's done here. And so from that, this is what I've learned. I had to launch out into a course of rigorous action and to take a personal house cleaning and to trust God in clean house. And I believe that this book is divinely inspired. It takes me all the way through to prepare me to do this fourth step work. So I learned to trust my higher power to help me through working this this particular step. And it's a vital and crucial step. Um, You know, I had to find out what was blocking me because food was no longer the symptom. I had to look at my causes and conditions. And I had to address my thinking and my behavior and my attitude. Um, If you'll notice, it says on page 64, fact-finding, fact-facing. And what I was told when I was doing this, it was not emotional finding and emotional facing, but fact-finding, fact-facing. I had to look at the various ways that my selfishness was manifested um, because that's the various ways in which it was getting in my way and blocking me off from the sunlight of the spirit. My selfishness, my self-centeredness, my self-seeking, and my self-will. And I personally believe that my self-will is the voice of my disease. I had to look down at all the resentments that I had because that was a form of a spiritual disease that I had. Um, I wasn't going to heal mentally or physically or spiritually if I didn't overcome this malady of resentments and fears. Um, I was told that on page, if you look on page 65, um, I was, it was suggested to me that to only write about two sentences Um, about um, what my part in was all of this. We have three columns here, and if you notice that there's a total of 19 words um, in the total column on page 65. Um, What jumps it out at me at 66 is that I had thought how others had wronged me and was as far as I got, and that I realized that the more that I fought and tried to have my own way, the worse matters got. And these are some of the things that came to me um, during my fourth step. And I had to realize, too, that the resentments were futile, and it made me unhappy, and I squandered the hours, and it, and it was infinitely grave and fatal, and I was shutting myself off from the sunlight of the Spirit. I did that with the food, and now I had to look at why I was shutting myself off from the sunlight of the Spirit. Um, on page 66 it talks about on paragraph 3 it talks about looking back at our list so we've made i made a list the three columns and then what i call the fourth column which is the invisible column on page 67 it talks about that you know what was my part in it where was i selfish dishonest self-seeking and afraid um that's what i had to look at as well and also including in that before that What helped me is to do the sick man's prayer, which is also known as the resentment prayer. And there's actually more instruction if you look on page 552. You'll see more of instruction on on the resentment prayer. So here I had to look at column 4, the invisible column, where I had been selfish, dishonest, and frightened. And I wanted to live in a different way, and I had to trust and rely on my higher power that tells me on page 68, paragraph 2, line 2. Um, and then there are promises in here, and I, I was promised that my my higher power would be able to enable me to match calamity with serenity. And and then to remove my fear and direct me to my attention to what God would have me be. And that's the promise as well, that once I ask God to remove my fear, at, at once I would commence to outgrow the fear. And that's on page 68. And then looking at my sex conduct, my relationships—what were those about? Where was I selfish and dishonest and inconsiderate? Where had hurt somebody? Where had I been? Where had aroused jealousy or suspicion or bitterness? And it gave me—it gave me the courage. To, God gave me the courage to do this one too. And what I love is that there are three prayers in in the relationships and the first one is is that we ask God to mold our ideas and help us to live up to them, which is on uh, page 69, line 2, paragraph 2, line 3. And then in meditation it says, in meditation we ask, what should we do about each specific matter? And then the last one is, we earnestly pray for the right ideal for, for guidance in each questionable situation for sanity and for strength to do the right thing. And the other promise, too, is that the answers will come if we want it. And that just that one of the promises that I love is that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked me from my higher power. And so what I want to finish with is just that I'm so grateful that, you know, the people on the line, when I went through this with my step guide, she, from the very beginning, told me that I had to rely on God, that that's where my reliance had to be, and that I needed to make phone calls. So this prepared me so when I went through my fourth step that I would call people and talk to them about the fourth step and how they got through it. And they gave me a lot of experience, strength, and hope. And they told me about pray a lot, Sherry. Just keep doing it. Put the right thing right in front of you and keep doing it. And I'm just grateful to all the people on the line. I just want to wish you all a happy anniversary. And I'm just so grateful and honored to be doing this fourth step with all of you. And if you ever want to talk about it, give me a call. With that, I pass. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Sherry KB. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Terry A.H. from Maine.
7: Thanks, Leah. Happy anniversary, a vision for you. My name is Terry A.H. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Maine. Chapter five. Uh, Step five, chapter six, into action. As I was going through this process, I was asked a question. Why am I doing this work? Am I doing it to feel better or am I doing it because I don't want to die? In step four, I write the truth not to find out what I am, if anything, to find out what I'm not. Having made our personal inventory, what what shall we do about it? We have been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. We have admitted certain defects. We have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action in our part, which when completed will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapters. In step five, I see the truth, I speak the truth, and I hear the truth. In actual practice, it usually, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal. You see, I can't grade my own paper because I will always give myself an A. Self cannot reveal self to self. I must share my inventory with another person. Thank you to my guide. Here's why I must share this, and here's my first warning. The best reason first if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. If I don't do the work, I'm not going to change. And if I don't change, I'm not going to stay. Behind every resentment, every fear, every secret, every unmade amends is a relapse. As I begin to share my pissed up, I could always see those character defects as they show up on the outsides, like, for example, gossip, jealousy, judgmental, impatient, insecurity, which all comes from my self-seeking behavior and my selfish attitudes. But what the game changer for me was I was never in touch like I am today with what was underneath those defects, the nature of them, what drives me to act out on the outside. What I now begin to wake up to is the nature is what's deep inside me, the root of my troubles, the fear that drives the delusion, the lies I tell myself because I can't live comfortably in the fear that's in my selfish attitudes that results in my self-seeking behaviors out here to you. On page 73, it says, more than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much like the actor. To the outer world, he presents a stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. I see how fear sets up the condition for me to put those roles on others in column three of my resentments and in the world around me. And now I'm living my life in the delusion that I have control. I am now in touch with the nature of my problem and the level of insanity inside of me that I can't change on my own power, that I have this spiritual malady within me that will always manifest in the unmanageability of my life. On my own power, running on fear, I see how I was trying to run the world and how I need you to see me in a certain way. My truth is I'm so full of fear, I start telling myself the lies that I'm unlovable, I'm not enough, I'm not important, I'll never measure up and I'll end up alone. And on my own power, I really believe this to be true. You see, the truth is my truth, and so it's no longer my truth. I can now begin to see what's objectionable about the interactions of my behavior, my selfishness, my attitude, and my fear. I can now see on my own power, I couldn't have behaved any differently. I see in my resentments how I play God, how resentments separate me from God and others, how my beliefs in column three my lack of compassion, my security is based on people rather than God. How can I, and I can't, I can't afford anger. Today, my new attitude is, when I turn to God, I now get to see people for who they are, not for who I want them to be. And whenever I feel insecure, I get to go in to get secure. In my fear inventory, I saw how fear drives my life. And on my own power, I can do nothing about the delusion. Self-reliance fails me. Fear is like a thief stealing my peace. My new attitude, when I turn to God, if I always go within, I will never go without. I can do the stitches and God will do the pattern. I can do God's work, but not his job. I get to leave some work for God. In my relationship conduct, I saw my inability to form a true connection with others, how I hurt people, and my selfish motives, my actions and behaviors. My new attitude, when I turn to God, instead of looking for the right person, I get to be the right person. And with a sane and sound ideal in how I want to be, I can now ask God to mold my ideal and help me to live up to it and be the woman God wants me to be in all my relationships. And yes, I do see that my troubles are of my own making, and my desperate need for God. As I finish with the process, the fifth step promises follows for me immediately as the result of doing the work. As I have my hour with God, reviewing what I have just done, my prayer, Dear God, thank you for giving me the strength, faith, and courage I needed to get through my fifth step. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me to know you better. By showing me what has been blocking me from you and others, God, please show me if I have omitted anything, and I ask that you help me honestly see if my stones are properly in place or if I have skimped in any area of this work. You see, what I know today from my experience is, God created Terry, then Terry created Terry with all her fears, delusion, and defects. Now I get to be, get. Now I get to get back to the Terry God. God created. I am now ready for step six and seven. Thanks for letting me share and happy anniversary.
1: Thank you, Terry A H. Step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. John K from California.
8: Good morning. This is John Kiernan, recovered compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. Um, thank you, Leia, for asking me to uh, share on this, and happy fifth birthday vision for you. Um, so, yeah, to, to re- research this, I decided to read all that was written on step six in the big book, and I started on page 76, paragraph one, and ended on, ooh, oops, page 76, paragraph one. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's funny because of the first about 25 plus years in program, I tended to go to step uh, six, seven, uh, a little bit like that and now they're really the most important steps in my life on a daily basis uh, you know I think step six is that fork in the road you know fork and road, uh, the Road the road of the path to recovery you know or relapse if I don't do it I uh, I really believe that like it says in the aA 12 and 12 it's the one that separates the men from the boys you know because over the years I've watched a lot of people go out and I think it a lot of it has to do with steps six and seven and not continuing to enlarge your spiritual experience. Uh, And I need to remember, you know, the steps are not a rite of passage, you know, they're a way of life. Um, And, you know, when I talk about the step in retreats, I've usually run through the preceding steps first because I believe there's such a perfect flow as was just mentioned. Go from five, right at six and seven. And so when you arrive at six and seven, you begin to see why they're so crucial to recovery. And I believe it's, the reason is because our disease will gain access and entry back into our lives through our character defects. Um, I've got to tell you, personally, I'm not a big fan of the phrase character defects. I, I think it came uh, you know, from a certain moral, religious thinking at the time in which the 12 Steps originated. Um, personally, I like a phrase like defense mechanisms or survival skills or, or think of them as character liability. That's really what they are for us, how they're liability. And, uh, you know, we need to remember that these defects were things that we came to use as ways to cope. You know, we didn't do them for no reason, they served a purpose. A lot of us grew up in dysfunctional households, and these were defenses uh, in an often you know, hostile environment. You know, I always like to say these weren't crazy actions, they were sane reactions in a crazy world. You know, and what we, I needed to realize now is that they were no longer serving me and that, that I needed to get rid of them to make way for better ways to get through life. Now, of course, the gotcha word in Step 6 is the word entirely. You know, the, the key uh, when, we, when it comes to character defects is we have to be willing to let go of all of the root and branch, as it says the old story. And I think this is so important, as I hope you come to see, and some of these defects will be how my disease gets back in my life. You know, and the question is which ones? Well, we can't know, and that's why you gotta get rid of all of them. You know, and to paraphrase the big book. If we don't do this, we'll eat again, and with us to eat again is to die. And so you gotta sort of ask yourself an important question. Do I wanna play Russian roulette with one of the right in my republic? Am I a mind by? It? And if not, I have to be ready to let go of all these character defects. You know, uh, I tell people working on the steps requires developing some faith, faith at least in the step process itself, you know, because so much of working the steps has the pain or discomfort, you know, front-loaded into it, meaning that as it re- we can't get to see until after we've done these steps and look back as to why they're so important and see the benefit. You know, being willing to let go of all of these character defects is actually another level of surrender. You know, and this surrender requires faith. Faith that will no longer need these defects and faith that they'll be supplanted by something better. You know, and in turn, that leads us to not only be better people, but to like ourselves more because we are better people. And at the end of the day, you know, a person who likes themselves and or herself, you know, they don't want to do self-destructive things like compulsively eat or drink or drug. You know, we become... The people our higher power wanted us to be and created us to be before we ended up with these, these flaws. Now, I don't have time to talk about all of my defects, my abilities, trust me. Um, but uh, I think two of them, uh, eliminating two of them were sort of important to my recovery. First of all, immaturity. Because when it came to the food, I was like a little child. I want what I want when I want it. <laughs> I remember the, paraphrasing more about alcoholism to a sponsor one day and sort of saying, uh, you know, the great desire of every compulsive eating is something like a normal person. And he laughed. He says, no, we don't. We don't want to eat like normal people. We want to eat the way we want to eat and have none of the bad effects. And I slapped, They go, yeah, it's right. I did. I, I wanted to eat whatever I wanted. And you know what? The laws of physiology don't care what I want, you know. So I needed to develop a sober relationship with the food. And if, I, if I don't, this is how my disease can get back at. We have a great old-timer out here in L.A. area uh, named Ray. He always says, my abstinence is I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, if I'm willing to pay the price. And today I'm not, so I eat 3 weight metric meals, nothing in between, so. And, you know, the great thing about that is Ray's taking responsibility for his actions. Now, I always wanted, when it came to the my food plan and things like that, I tended to want to use the word can't. Oh, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. You know, and I remember at one point in the program with a you know strict food plan, well, they can't tell me I can't I can't eat sugar or white blood. Well, no, they can't. This is a free country. I can eat as much as I want. But that's what happens. My disease holds up this balance sheet to my immature self. Oh, you poor thing. It so says you don't get to eat that or that or that or that. You know, it never holds up the other side of the balance sheet. It Says, "Oh, you poor thing, you don't get winded walking up three steps. You don't wear out your pants and thighs because your thighs rub together. You don't get to sit at home every Saturday night." And you know, that's what my disease wants to get into the maturity. And I also wanted my way all the time. You know, I was a perfect example of self-will. Brian Ryan it says in the book. And the other uh, major thing. Uh, uh, for me, it was a family of defects, which included narcissism and ego and self-centeredness. the big book. You know, almost all at the end of the day came down to fear. You know, At the bottom of every one of them was fear, and mostly fear that I'm not enough. Fear that I'm not as good as you. Fear that you'll see that I'm not as good as you. And I would try and hide these fears with all sorts of self defeating behaviors. You know, like with ego, I had to make sure you'd help whatever I was. You know, I was like one of those animals that pumped themselves up in the wild. Or whatever. And, you know, the recovery came, uh, you know, and I love what Dr. Paul says in the un- unacceptance uh, chapter. And in particular, the, the paragraph right after the acceptance paragraph on page 747. Because he has a great line. He says, when I complain about me or you, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. Now, you know it doesn't say when I'm complaining about you. It says when I'm complaining about me or you. And I needed to to really get that, that to help me realize I'm right where God wants me to be. I want to be better, but it's okay. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And this helped me develop some compassion towards myself and realize I'm a work in progress. At the end of the day, working these steps helped me realize I am enough. I can see that every day I continue to work these steps. I'm turning into a better person and. In turn, I don't need to do some of those things I used to do that I used to call character defects. I can have the faith I'll be okay with that, and that my higher power isn't going to take me this far only to drop me. So um, that's about all I have time for on this subject. I have two other special editions up there one on step six and the other on fear. Character defects, if you want to hear it. And with that, I pass.
1: Thank you, John Kay. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Victoria V. from Minnesota.
9: Thank you, Leah, and congratulations and gratitude to Vision for You for the powerful message that gets carried. I'm Victoria V. from Minneapolis, Minnesota, compulsive eater, grateful to share my experience with step seven. Humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. I celebrated 15 years of continuous abstinence last April 15th after 21 years of slipping and relapsing in the rooms of OA. Out of desperation, I began working a more structured and disciplined approach in OA 15 years ago, which allowed me to dive into the big book, and I'm so glad I stayed for the miracle. Humility, which is at the heart of step seven and is the foundation principle of all the 12 steps, made my willingness possible. Throughout my four-step inventory, my constant prayer was, God, please help me to see what I could never see on my own. That prayer was always answered as I was given more insight into who I was and the destructive impact of my defects of character on others, my relationships, and on myself. Humility made this prayer possible. Without this essential help from the God of my understanding, I simply could not see myself or my relationships with others. I did not run away from the insights I was given, though they were painful. I prayed for more. It was very humbling to finally realize I could not see myself clearly through my eyes alone. As I kept praying that simple, earnest prayer, I was given insights that went to the very core of my character. On page 12 of Bill's story, Bill says, Thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view, For me, this describes the pathway to humility and the freedom to see clearly that it allows. I learned why I was incapable of truly loving anyone, how my self-loathing and fear conspired to keep me separate, self-absorbed, distrustful, and ultimately alone. I provoke conflicts without having any desire or intention of doing so. It's impossible to love others from such a place of inner darkness. But when I could actually see for the first time how deep and wide the wreckage was and how it clearly flowed from my own defects of character, I felt afraid of taking the next step step seven, and I hit a wall, a crisis, really, in my recovery. By the time I got to step seven, I saw myself clearly for the first time in my life. I saw plainly that my defects of character had driven all my affairs. My life was a landscape of broken and abandoned relationships, vain ambitions, the conviction that I was the innocent victim in any altercation and that my disease of compulsive eating permeated my character, my behavior, and my personality, that it ran right down through the core of my being. Crossing the hurdle of step seven, asking God to remove all my shortcomings, felt insurmountable to me. If all my defects were removed, It seemed nothing would be left. It felt like death. The person I saw in the mirror of step four would essentially disappear or die. Even if it was transformation, it still felt like I would cease to exist. Someone strangely new and unknown would inhabit my body. While to me, I had been all my life would cease to exist. I stayed paralyzed in that place. For weeks, trapped between the two choices of falling back into the tortured existence of compulsive eating or becoming someone I didn't know and wouldn't recognize. Finally, I jumped off that cliff and humbly asked God to remove all my shortcomings. I was ready to surrender all that I had been and allow that nameless, invisible higher power who had carried me this far to take me the rest of the way. I had no clue who I would be, what kind of life I could possibly have, given all the wreckage of my past, all the strange mental twists that drove my thinking and my behavior. It was in this state that I found the true humility I needed, and I humbly asked the God of my understanding to remove my shortcomings. I'm so grateful, even though it has taken a long, long time to deeply desire humility as a way of life. This longing to be humble is exactly the opposite of how I had viewed the world in my own life before finally finding long-term abstinence in OA. I had abhorred the thought of being humbled. To my sixth mind, it meant being spineless, pathetic, a pushover, and an underachiever. Humility had always seemed to be a dangerous course in an unpredictable world. It was only by being brought to my knees by the despair of compulsive eating and facing the agonizing condition of my life that I discovered for myself how liberating humility is. Humility opens up a whole new world, the chance to be genuinely happy to love deeply, the profound pleasure of being useful to others, and the ability to accept deeply painful truths about myself and the defects of character which had shaped me and ruled me. In closing, I'd like to share the definition of humility that Dr. Bob kept on his desk in plain view on a plaque. You'll find it in the AA book. Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, on page 222. I've come to treasure it. Humility, perpetual quietness of heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be fretted or vexed, irritable or sore, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me, And when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in myself where I can go in and shut the door and pray to my God in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and about me is seeming trouble. Thank you for allowing me to share today and for all the ways you've supported my own recovery.
1: Thank you, Victoria V. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Ginger C. from Colorado.
10: Good morning, everyone. This is Ginger C., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Colorado. And thank you, God, for a vision for you, and happy blessed five years. So step eight, You know, this step really began back in my fourth step when I put down my resentments. Transferring this list was simple. The hard part was being willing to make amends to them all. So when my sponsor told me that I'd be making an amends to my mom, I truly thought he was joking. I had no idea that this would actually be happening. I trusted him, though, and I just followed the directions. But I I wondered, you know, did you hear my fist up? Did you hear the pain that I went through having a mom abandon you and reject you and absolutely physically leave you when you were five? And he just simply said, how free do you want to be? So I was hugely affected and I was tethered to my mom and this resentment deep in my soul. And I couldn't even see it. And I was drinking the poison and waiting for her to die my story that I kept resending over and over and over and over was deep, and it had me twisted and bound. I had been running this show and this story for decades, and now I know why I kept relapsing. I was so blocked from the sunlight of the spirit. So I told him, since I trusted him, that I would consider making an amend maybe in two years. And then he just said, Ginger, you don't have two years. Then my fear really got high. I had not had any contact with my mom in over 15 years. So what helped me to become willing? First and foremost, it was this God, this higher power, this relationship that began when the food went down. And I saw freedom. And I saw myself no longer obsessing over the next fight and where it was coming from. This God faith that just kept building in me. And then I remembered that God is everything or else he is nothing. And being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him. So I did a few 10-step turnarounds concerning my fear. And I reflected on how resentment is my number one offender, that it's infinitely grave and it cuts the sunlight of the spirit off. And I knew I only had two doors to blot this out or to accept spiritual help. So on page 76, my sponsor read to me the bottom sentence and it says, Remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any length for victory over alcohol. And this helped me to lean in and fight on. I did not want to eat again. I could not eat again. I know I don't have another recovery in me. So I prayed for strength, and I prayed for courage to do that next right thing. And literally two days later, with the love and guidance of a higher power, I picked up the phone with a forgiving and helpful spirit, and I made amends to my mom. And by far, it has been one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Years of therapy did not begin to touch the transformation that took place on that phone. I truly went from this deep resentment to liberation. And now I hold a place in my heart of love for a mother that I never knew. No longer was I drinking the poison. Thank you, God. I was free. So, nine times out of 10, the unexpected happens. Thank God for these clear cut directions. And thank God for a vision for you, and with that, I pass.
1: Thank you, Ginger C Step nine make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Joe M. from Minnesota
11: Hi, good morning. My name is Joe. I'm a compulsive overeater. As Leah said, Step 9 says, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Because I had gone through the first eight steps and had run my proposed amends through my sponsor before going out and doing them, I was clear about the errand that I was on in doing Step 9. I was clear about the harm I had done. I was clear about the amends I owed. I was clear that I accepted responsibility for my behavior, so that I would go into the amends prepared to do exactly what the step says to do. The big book told me how I was to approach each person or institution. On page 78, it says, If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the result. I read that passage before doing one of my biggest amends. It was to my dad. And it was so helpful in getting me ready inside to do this humbling work. I was calm, I was frank, and I was open in my amends. With each amend, I calmly stated what I had done, that I was sorry, that I was there to make it right, and then I was open by listening to the other person's response without interrupting, without judging, without arguing, without coming up with excuses, and being truly open to what the other person had to say. I sat face-to-face with people, talked to people over the phone, and sent letters, Through this process, I was able to clean up the wreckage of my past with my dad for having ignored his retirement, and I was able to make that right by giving him something that he and his wife could enjoy during his retirement years. To my sister for treating her badly when we were kids, to my other sister for neglecting her as an adult, to my brother for not standing up for him when his wife berated him in front of our family to a former roommate for having bad communication when we were roommates, to former employers for stealing from them when I worked for them, to grocery stores for shoplifting food from them, to a movie theater company for sneaking into a lot of movies without paying. And in all the instances where I stole, I paid money back. I made restitution. In one case, the person I had harmed did not know I had harmed her and to tell her what I had done would have caused harm. So I gave her a generous gift card to enable her to get certain repairs done that related to her safety, because the harm was safety-related. I called former bosses to apologize for my bad communication and behavior while I worked for them. I called a former coworker and apologized for not speaking to him the last two years we worked together. I called everyone uh, who I had worked with, on an OA committee for having dominated the group and being disharmonious in the committee process. I called a former babysitting client and apologized for having eaten food in secret while I worked for them, and I offered to pay for that food. And when they said that wasn't necessary, I used the money instead to buy a prepackaged bag of food at the grocery store that they would donate to a food shelf. I distinctly remember coming home from that particular errand and feeling so harmonious inside, so free, because of the effect the amends together were having on me. I felt like I was walking on air. And I remember thinking of my Saturday OA meeting and saying to myself, I've got to go there and tell people about this. It was the first time in my OA experience that I felt compelled to share my experience out of a deep desire for other people to know that this kind of freedom is possible. I did have a couple of experiences. People did not receive my amends in the way I hoped they would. Page 78 says, it should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We've made our demonstration, done our part. It's water over the dam. I did have to make amends to someone I didn't like. On page 77, it says, The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. We are still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. It is harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit. I was learning that it didn't matter whether I liked someone. What mattered was my need to make things right. Step 9 Changed My Life. On page 83 of the big book, it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. I was amazed. I had never experienced this kind of reconciling with other people or within myself. The book goes on to say, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. By the time I was making amends, I had lived almost 40 years not knowing how to apologize, how to repair damage i also didn't know why i would do these things if i could get away with not doing it the earlier steps got me to a place where i accepted why i needed to make amends and then step nine enabled me to make those amends a new freedom i had also spent almost 40 years believing i had no right to get free of the bondage of my past and step nine showed me that my harm was finite that the amends was finite and that I, in fact, did have the right to get free of this because I followed the directions in the big book. The process worked to relieve me of the pain of my past because it is designed to work, and that's my step nine. I'll pass.
1: Thank you, Jo M. Step ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Esther C. from Canada.
12: Thanks, Leah. Good morning, my friends, and happy anniversary. My name is Esther C. from Toronto, Canada, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. My experience with the first nine steps is a process, you know, where I went from that awful bottom of disease, what the big book describes on page 152 as a jumping-off place, where I was wishing for the end, all the way over to a state where I was restored to sanity, and this is what the big book promises me in its discussion of step 10, this process reminds me kind of like an emergency room visit, you know, where someone's coming in in an acute state, for example, having a heart attack. It's all hands on deck. We work quickly in order to save a life, and then the patient recovers. And then the question becomes, now what? So once I had done that first nine steps, now what? Am I done? I'm not done. If there's one theme that's consistent throughout this big book it's that my relationship with my higher power in other words my you know my spiritual life must be constantly developing because after all my relationship with my higher power is new and until i recovered it was untapped it it was an untapped inner resource this relationship is going to guide every aspect of my life this is going to be for me the source of all my security and inner peace and especially, and most importantly for me as a compulsive overeater, this relationship is going to solve my food problem. The quality of my life today is a reflection of that relationship. So there are two two things that I need to do um, and two approaches to that relationship. The first, One of them is um, what I do to actively deepen that relationship for, through prayer, meditation, and gratitude, things like that. And that would be step 11, which... I won't be talking about today, but what I will be um, uh, reflecting on today is the other side of the relationship, uh, maintaining that closeness by the things um, I do to remain unblocked, unblocked by my self-centeredness, unblocked by my self-importance, and many character traits which are manifestations of of that self-centered self-centered soul. So step 10, step ten for me is the ongoing process of noticing, identifying, acknowledging, and then preparing for removal, all those things that block me from my higher power and peaceful living. Now, I, I really believe that spiritual progress is, a, is limit, limitless, so I, I'm always going to have um, character defects, or if you want to call them character traits with selfish manifestations. I, I believe that they're always going to be there. I'll never, I'm never going to be done with that because I am a human, and these are basic you know, it's basic human nature to be concerned with self. My growth and my serenity lies in my moving away from self and moving towards God. So I, I, never, I never have to work on my character traits or work on my defects. Why don't I work on them? The reason I don't need to is they don't need my help. Um, these things appear, and I might add sometimes with alarming frequency, totally on their own. So what I merely have to do is to notice them, when they come up, I, I identify them for starters. And so how do I do that? It's very easy. During the course of my day, if I'm disturbed, if I'm annoyed, if I'm worried, if I'm angry, if I'm frustrated, bored, fearful, irritated, and any emotion you could imagine other than that's not um, peacefully content or serene, that's my clue. That's my ding, ding, ding sign. That's my you know flashing light on the dashboard, and it's a signal to me. And just like my body has signals um, to let me know when something's wrong, so my spirit also has those signals, and that's one of my signals. And any of those unsettled feeling, and when and when any of those unsettled feelings arise, when's that? When my wishes and my desires are being either thwarted or unfulfilled or not fulfilled to my specification. So I process those feelings, um, those situations, the way that I've been taught in Steps four through nine, and the Big Book. Teaches us very nicely in those uh, uh, pages how to, what we do when we experience those feelings during the day. But I'm not going to um, go through them because that's more detailed. But I did want to share that as the years pass, I'm able to see patterns. I see some stubborn, recurring character traits, and I get to do some more intensive work around those. I've certainly had a deeper understanding of myself, and also the ideas, emotions, and attitudes that are the guiding force of my life, those that I notice and wish to discard and replace with new ones. And to me, this whole process is, is pretty straightforward. Again, as it's outlined in the big book, nothing very exciting. And yet somehow, many countless ten step later, I start to see the changes. As a matter of fact, I don't even call them 10 steps because 10 steps sound very formal. I, I think of this process that goes on in my head during the day as a thinking readjustment. You know, it's slowly over the years become a new way of thinking, This these readjustments that I do every day, every hour of the day, or as the need arises. Each time feeling like it's just a small little thing that I do, and 10 months of readjustments later, I look back and I realize, hey, I, you know what, I think there's a new me developing here. All of this uh, self-evaluation that I do and perhaps those of you as well do on a daily basis could could seem like a drag to those of you who haven't quite, you know, gotten to step 10 yet. Um, perhaps the perception is that somehow all this self-evaluation will sap life of its enjoyment. But I want to tell you that my experience has been the exact opposite of that. And I wanted to read something to you also from the big book, from one of the stories at the back of the book, Um, on page 275, which I think describes what this process did for me. And this is a quote from page 275 in the fourth edition. AA is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It's a way of life, and the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep any human being striving for as long as he lives. We do not, cannot outgrow this plan. As arrested alcoholics, we must have a program for living that allows for limitless expansion. Keeping one foot in front of the other is essential for maintaining our arrestment. Others may idle in a retrogressive groove without too much danger, but retrogression can spell death for us. However, this isn't as rough as it sounds, as we do become grateful for the necessity that makes us toe the line, and we find that we are compensated for a consistent effort by the countless dividends we receive. So I just want to say that of all the investments I've ever made in my life and all the investments I continue to make, um, this little investment I make in my daily, uh, daily work has also reaped for me countless dividends. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you for allowing me to share.
1: Thank you, Esther C. Step 11, Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Lisa B. from South Carolina.
9: Good morning. This is Lisa B., a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in Greenville, South Carolina. Happy anniversary. Happy birthday, a vision for you. I'm so grateful for you. I wanted to share why Step 11 is so meaningful to me and how it's made a profound impact on my recovery process. The 12 and 12 tells me that People, those of us that have practiced um, prayer and meditation have found wisdom beyond their usual capability and they have found peace of mind which can stand firm in the face of difficult circumstances. It also tells me um, in the 12 and 12 that the benefits of prayer are beyond question, that all who have persisted have found strength not ordinarily their own. I need this strength every day, all through the day, 24 hours a day. But one of the greatest rewards, and this is in the 12 and 12 also, I have found this to be so true for myself, is that meditation and prayer gives a sense of belonging that comes to us, no longer feeling like I'm living in a completely hostile world. So the benefits of step 11 and why it's so profound and meaningful to me is I get emotional balance, strength, wisdom, peace of mind. A sense of belonging could it be that when Bill tells us about his friend ebby and Bill's story was much more in his opinion and his appearance was much more than inwardly reorganized he appeared to be on a different footing his roots grasped new soil that is my experience with with uh, step 11 so um, the big book on page 85 Tells us that to some extent we have begun to get a sense of the flow of this spirit into us and that we have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. And that's really what I'm needing step 11 for. I'm needing this vital sixth sense. I went to food for an effect. The steps need to give me an effect. So um, it then goes on to tell me that it works if we have a proper attitude and work at it. So when I look back at Bill's story, Um, Let me see. Bill says in his story that belief in the power greater than himself, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility is all that he needed to establish and maintain this new order of things. I, too, have found that to be my experience. Um, So, you know, step 11 is a discipline. It's really about a series of uh, suggested formats of keeping this power active in my life. So I want to look at what I have found to be the promises in step 11. And those are on page 88. It says here, we become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily. We are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. We alcoholics are undisciplined. So when I'm getting tired, that means... I'm trying to run the show. I'm getting too much of me in there. I need to have more of God and less of myself. And then I'm 87. It tells me that as I go through the day, I can pause when agitated or doubtful. Well, pausing sometimes is scary for me because I like to just keep moving forward. Keep going. Don't stop the momentum. And I had to do 10 steps on my fear of pausing. What is my higher power gonna tell me? So that really helped me to start to look at what is my fear about pausing? But I desperately need this power. This is what sustains me. I can ask for the right thought or action. And then it tells me that um, I need to look at where religious people are right, that I could look for some books and material that is discussing the principles that we're talking about in this book and maybe get some prayers to help me. It's also telling me a plan of action, a suggested plan um, in the morning, what I can do. I can, the minute my eyes open, I need to stop because, you see, my motive, my motive is self-centered and does have self-pity and is dishonest and self-seeking. So the minute my eyes open, I ask to be divorced, separated from those qualities, those characteristics. Um, And I ask God, you know, to help me to help me have the right mental faculties. The whole idea is for me to operate and function on a higher plane when my thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Um, And then the nightly review. The nightly review, I found, is very much like the steps four through nine. I've caught many uh, many 10 steps that needed to be done in the nightly review. And I do my nightly review right after dinner, so I don't wait until I'm dead tired. But, and I do find writing it out helps me. I just email it to myself. And I answer these questions. Was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself? In other words, do I need to do a 10-step? Was I kind and loving toward all? Was I selfish and self-seeking? You know, that's what it's saying to me. Um, what could I do better? There are questions here that are going to help me get my game plan for the next day. What are some corrective measures I need to take? And I just want to backtrack a little bit. Dr. Silkworth says to us, in in the doctor's opinion, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through and through. Perhaps he came to scoff. Another word for scoff would be ridicule, laugh at, dismiss. He may remain to pray. And then the 12 and 12 tells me that prayer and meditation are the principal means of conscious contact with God, my higher power. Steps 10, 11, and 12 for me are the growing steps. I need to keep growing. I can't stay stagnant. And, you know, um, a daily practice of meditation, which could sound so intimidating, I could start with one minute a day for 30 days. Then I'll have a meditation practice. And I found it does get longer with time because of these wonderful benefits of emotional balance, strength, wisdom, peace of mind, a sense of belonging. Those are all the reasons that I ate. Um, A feeling of having my feet on the ground, my feet grasping the soil with deep roots. And not that the wind is going to blow me and I'm going to be tossed which way and that way. I have a grounding. That grounding is so vital and important to me. Um, So I think that also the 12 and 12, another thing that stood out for me is it says, prayer is the raising of the heart and mind to God. And that's, that's a really nice thing for me to think about what that means. It gets better each day I do this. It is a discipline that I need just like I need air and food and water and sunshine. It keeps me alive and it keeps me sane. And I don't have to try and find um, ways to take care of myself um, outside of these steps. That If I practice this step every day, there will be emotional balance and sanity and peace and wisdom and guidance. That's what I need that I pass.
1: Thank you, Lisa B. We have now arrived at step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to to other compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Howard W. from Minnesota.
13: Hi there. This is Howard, a compulsive overeater from Minneapolis. Um, And a great honor to be here, and happy anniversary. so service. So let, let me start with what, what I don't think is service based on the big book. You know, and I've heard different explanations over the years. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm a good parent. You know, I take my kids to ball games. I've got a college fund. You know, I, I have someone who I'm sponsoring again after a multi-year gap. He wanted to be a better parent, and that's one reason he's, he's back. Um, is, is this service? No, I, I really think this is a responsibility. This is you know you have a lot of parents in the program and they're doing this to be better parents and we, we all have the nightmare and we all heard the nightmare of our own stories and stories we've heard in the program of living with an addict and it is extremely destructive for, for some for some me um, being a good parent or being a parent is not service how about being a good partner you know hey uh, you know, honey do you need anything from the drugstore you know can i bring you some flowers or I'm going to bring her some flowers or him some flowers. You know, that's great. You know, um, that, that, is, that is a great uh, attitude. Um, but I don't see it as service. I think if you're a in a relationship, you, you help each other. I mean, that is kind of the part of it. You know, so, so not, not service in my mind or in the big book. You know, how about being a sponsor? Is being a sponsor service? I hear some debate in, in this. I, I don't see it as service. For me, I see that as, you know, giving back, you know, the obligation to give back. You know, it, it's not service to me, um, but I do think it's great to have, you know, to be compassionate, to be generous with my sponsorship, you know, or, or, and that I've received this through the years. You know, for me, it's like he- healthy reparenting. You know, for me, service is about carrying the message. Uh, it's about carrying the message to the fellowship, to the newcomer, to, uh, you know, other people in the program. And I remember when I was newly abstinent, it was maybe three or four months in, um, my group volunteered to host the convention, to manage and do the convention. And the registration person called me and said, Howard, could you do a shift on Saturday morning at the convention at the registration desk? And, of course, I said no. Um, I I did not want to do that. I was not planning to go to the convention. Um, I said, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't think I would, would really be able to do that. And I, I could not get this woman off the phone, and so I worked the registration desk at the convention. And, you know, it was great. It got me there. I remember talking to a newer person who had been in about the length of time that I was in, was still struggling. Um, I, I didn't, But I didn't know it was going to be great until I did it. It's like abstinence. Until I'm abstinent, I don't know what I was missing. Um, so I, I had to just, you know... I had to be encouraged, as they say. you know. And since then, I've been through – I've been at the Intergroup. I've been at World Service Business Conference. I've been at Region 4. I mean, I guess you could call me a service junkie. Uh, I guess that's true. But, I mean, can you imagine the people I've seen come and go over the last 30 years? And this has kept me here. Um, it has given me a sense of belonging. Um it is giving me something to look forward to, and to and to, and to have a, a vision for. I mean, I, I'm going to be working on our next big book study in 2018. That's almost a year away. I mean, we're we're, we're starting now. Um, I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be abstinent. You know, I'm starting a new meeting that's going to be live streamed, and I'm working this on a daily basis. And you know, it is keeping me engaged. And I've and I've got people on the committee. That are at the place that I was at all those years ago, newly abstinent, newly to the program. You know, and I'm just hoping that it means t- to them what it meant to me. You know, that person that asked me to do that registration desk knew that it would be important to me, and they were right. You know, I need to be missed. You know, I need to be. If I don't show up, I need to be missed. You know, because I just dabbled for the first year. You know, I just would come and go. I come late. I'd leave. I'd, I'd leave early um you know i in order to ha- you know get the to to get the benefits to get the promises i have to be all all in you know does it does it take a lot of time you know it really doesn't in the scheme of things you know it does cut into my sitting around time but it's it's really uh, it, it's a great return on investment you know what what i have now that i would have never had um the main thing on page 93 of the bible the main thing is that He'd be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he lived by spiritual principles. You know, I, I need to be in a constant state of, of service. And for me, that is about self-reflection, self-reflection self-honesty, and con- on a continuous process of making amends. You know, I'm doing this for service to people in my life. I, I need to be reasonable. Um, you know, and, and when I say amends, I don't mean even say I'm sorry I didn't take the cap off the pen or, you know, I'm sorry I wasn't, you know, I dropped the, the you know, things off at the wrong place. I mean, I mean you know, real, I mean, it's got to be real. It's got to be, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for what I said. Um, you know, I, I could have done better. And, and you're right. It was none of my business. I mean, it has to be really heartfelt. You know, I mean, this is my spirituality. You know, I have to engage people. I have to, I have to connect with people on a real level, and I never did that before. And I have to, I have to bring people into my life. And I remember my dad would always say to me, "You know, Howard, you just, you just never listen to anybody." And I'm like, "You know, you know, why are you telling me this?" You know, and you know, I just, and he would laugh. He was just like this great guy. He would laugh, but you know, I, I just was not. I was not responsive, and I, I just I need to engage to be of service. I need to be part of the solution. <clears throat> so, um, page ninety. Wait for the end of the spree, or at least for a lucid interval. Then let him let his family or friend ask him if he wants to quit for good, and if it would go to any extreme to do so. If he says yes, then his, his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who has part of their recovery, try to help others, and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. You know, this is not describing a diet. This is describing a way of life. This is talking about the promise and the obligation. You know, I, if I really want the promises in the big book, I have to give. I have to give back. I have to be uncomfortable. You know, I, 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 you know this is not a comfortable process for me. Uh, and probably for anyone, this is the way of the warrior. I have to be willing to extend myself, and I have to be willing to do what I don't want to do and say what I don't want to say. And, and, and what is not natural for me when I came to the program, this is not a natural extension of who I was. This is completely different. I, I remember going um, to this year that I was struggling. we go to, to a restaurant for fellowship at the end of the meeting, and I remember someone saying that since they've been in recovery and since they've got abstinent, everything has changed in their life. Their they, they, friends have changed. They're, where they live has changed. What, you know, what they feel has changed. You know, everything has changed. And, and it's like I'm, I'm like new and I'm thinking, gee, that, that's a lot. But, you know, it didn't scare me off. I knew that if I ever got this, if I ever stopped what I was doing, it would take me time to heal, and so I have to be ready to, to change. I have to be ready to continue to question and change, um, and I and I just um, and I, I remember that you know and it's and again it's not easy. I remember after a meeting, um, I I I, t- I walked up for one of the to the one of the senior members of the commi- of the meeting, and I said, you know, I'm. I'm eating this raw diet. I'm growing sprouts in my house. I'm eating a couple course of carriages every day. I'm feeling terrible, and I'm turning orange. And she just looked at me and said, um, you know, if what you're doing isn't working, change. And it was like I was taken aback. I, I didn't know, I, I didn't have anything to say. I mean, I could have said, um, you know, how dare you speak to me or how dare you take my inventory, but I just was, kind of I just kind of excused myself and I went home and I reflected and I I agreed. I mean I finally said, you know, yeah, maybe she's right. And you know, I'm just so grateful for her for her clarity and her directness. I mean, it wasn't easy to say and it wasn't easy to hear, but this is kind of the nature of what we do here, what I do, what I have to do. You know, I have to give a service of myself to the fellowship and to the newcomer, and, and to myself and those around me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Howard W., and thank you to all our speakers this morning. Contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. Happy anniversary, A Vision, for you and to everyone. You have just heard 13 recovered compulsive overeaters. Each have described in their own personal way how the 12 steps and the directions found in the big book have made a life-changing impact on their minds and hearts, producing a profound and revolutionary change, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, resulting in freedom. Thirteen voices woven together, a tapestry of transformation creating a powerful message of hope and possibility. Twelve simple steps which anyone can apply. Yes, that means you too. How free do you want to be? We will now close from page 164 in Chapter 11 entitled, A Vision for You. Irene M. will now read.
14: Yes, with... Um Great pleasure, honor, humility, and a privilege. Good morning, my spiritual brothers and sisters. It is by the grace and connection of God that we are all here today on this special five-year anniversary. Thank you, God, always giving credit where credit is due. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. Until then.